Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about bringing digital elements into a tabletop game. We're talking about bringing in an app, bringing in different digital things that enhance the game, improve the game, let the game play in different ways. And we're talking to Vincent Vergonjane from Lucky Duck Games. He's a CEO and founder over there. Vincent, welcome to the show. Hi. Nice nice to be here. Yeah, man. Glad you're here. Uh, I probably butchered your last name and so you you, you did a great job <laughs> Thanks, yeah and now you're you're coming to us from poland right yes yeah, so I'm, I'm actually french as you can tell uh-huh. from my accent but i moved to poland five years ago um and uh, yeah it's, we're supposed to be here only six months and the six months has been five years with with no plan to move gotcha now what brought you to poland originally well, so actually, the the I've been making uh, and running my own company, video game company, for ten years. But five years ago, uh, I was living in Kobojo, one of those video game company, and we were about to go to the U.S. My wife was born in the U.S., uh, California, but she was from two uh, Polish parents, which we decided basically to move back to Poland uh, after thirty years in the U.S. to retire. And uh, they convinced us to come for six months, and uh, and it's been five years. And the reason it's been five years is because I've met incredibly talented people here. Uh, and I, you know, I make video games, I make board games now, and the people you work with um, are so key to what what's the output of, of uh, you know you have a good idea, but what you actually become is so dependent on the people that. Uh, I'm so blessed of who I work with here, and I don't want to move out. It was unexpected to be here for so long, but, but uh, you know, the where doesn't matter as much as with the who. Yeah, gotcha. And now with with the internet, you can be, like, we're talking right now, you're seven hours ahead of me. I'm in Honduras. You're in Poland. You're from France. I'm from the United States. I mean, it's, it's a crazy time <laughs> that we live exactly. in. Exactly. Uh, Absolutely. But let's talk a little bit more about you. How'd you get into game design? How did Lucky Duck get started? All that good stuff. Yeah, so so it's a very interesting story, as I mentioned, actually. So I, I used to live in San Francisco in 2000, uh, 2008. Um, I was working for Microsoft at the time as a programmer, and we were toying with with uh, with Facebook, and we kind of we kind of found the recipe. We actually grew. Ex- we basically had one app that grew from zero to three million users in one month. I left I left Microsoft, and uh, for ever since it's been nine years precisely, ever since that I've been running my own company, specifically video game, uh, free-to-play games. Uh, that first company was called Kobojo, and uh, we had over a million and a half daily users on Facebook playing mostly casual games. And so when you have so much traffic and especially free-to-play, you're trying to sell things to your player, right? So we sell digital goods, but we're trying to sell physical things as well. Uh, and uh, so, but being digital, you don't want anything matter. You don't want to stock of anything. So you do everything that's on demand. So what can you do? Uh, T-shirt, mugs, 3D printed minifigures. And the truth is, it never really worked out. And none of this ever sold in a way that was like, oh, wow, yeah, let's make t shirt uh, it's, it's It's just... 
it was too small. I, I moved out of uh, Paris and Kobojo in 2012 to move to Poland and created another studio called uh, Everyday Play Specialized in uh, mid-core games. Mid-core games are games for kind of for boys, not not too hard, but I would say that this kind of, it's, it's not casual, it's right in the middle. And we launched a video game called Vikings Gone Wild, uh, which was a, a video game that did extremely well for us. And two years ago, two years and a half ago, actually two years and a half ago now, the time passed by so fast, Tim, yeah. um, my brother comes in and uh, calls me and says, Vincent, do you have some art? I'm, I'm actually working on some board game prototype and I could really use some assets. And I said, well, Julien, I'll give you some assets, but I want you to use this asset to actually make a board game using them. And so I gave him Vikings on one asset. I said, why don't you make a board game adaptation of this? It took him a while, actually. It took him took him the, at least six months before I, I heard back from him and I, I, I visited my parents in Paris that it was in the summer and I tried the game and I'm like holy that is that is such a good game I have no idea how to publish this thing uh, and how this even worked but I really want to try to even see if my player would be interested because I really enjoyed what I just played and uh, every day I play at the time is uh, doing very well financially. So we decided to kind of do this ourselves. We, we, we wrap this, you know, I, I put my art director on the subject. We do visualization and kind of tease this uh, inside the online game. And for the first time in nine years, I actually have something that people really want. They're like, wait, where can I buy this board game? What's going on? You know, and I, I can't find it on Amazon. <laughs> it's like, it's not ready yet. It's not ready. Yeah. So, um, we did a Kickstarter, which did way beyond anything we hoped. Uh, we did 2,750 backers on our first Kickstarter. About 20% of that came from the video game, and 80% came from uh, 50%, so 20% video game, 50% Kickstarter, and, and kind of 30% the outreach of, of our own kind of marketing work. And so, so this is where I realized that everyday play, though, is absolutely not equipped to become properly a proper publisher. Like the, the, the DNA of a free-to-play digital company is so different from a from a physical company. So that's where Lucky Duck was born, uh, out of a, the need of a proper structure to do this. And as, and as I'm creating Lucky Duck, it becomes obvious that actually, if this worked out with a small license like mine, which had uh, about 3 million downloads, um, it was, uh, it has very specific characteristics though. It was a four, Four years old IP with with some. Uh, it was only fourteen thousand the user at the time, but those people, those fourteen thousand data user, uh, were extremely were long time user, or four years old user almost. Right. So extremely extremely emotionally engaged. Looking back, actually, I think what worked out uh, and why why it works out this system is that a T-shirt just says, I am, you know, and you're not going to buy a t-shirt to say, I, I'm playing Vikings Gone Wild. Nobody freaking knows Vikings Gone Wild. So you're not, you know, it's not Star Wars, right? But a board game has the promise of a continued emotion. So, ooh, the board game. Oh, I love how I felt in this game. Maybe, maybe I can feel the same way with my son around the table. You know, like, you know, there, there is this promise of continued emotion that you can't get through a t-shirt, right? So, yeah, that, so that, that's out of, that's how, <laughs> after many years making digital game, uh, I, I happened to, to work on 
physical games. Yeah, gotcha. And you guys have a number of games at this point. It's not just Viking going wild. Going wild. You've done the you get a Fruit Ninja game. You have what, what are some of the other ones? I know, and I want to talk about Chronicles of Crime in a minute because that's the really one I'm excited about. What are some of the other games people might know? Uh, the, the Zombie Tsunami, and we also had the, we had two Kickstarter for for uh, Vikings Gone Wild, which has been doing extremely well for us. We sold over thirty thousand units in 2017. We have a new expansion called Masters of Element. We did extremely well. And I think overall, the Vikings Gone Wild found is, is um, it's its community. The Vikings Gone Wild itself has uh, three expansion to to date uh, around the board game, and the fourth one, Masters of Month, is coming in April. So gotcha. And then Zombie Tsunami, that's actually a game you uh, designed yourself, right? So you're not just a a publisher; you also get into the design stuff. I co-designed. So the the the, uh, the original designer of this and the main designer is Jeremy Torton, who is actually the game designer of the video game Zombie Tsunami. So Zombie Tsunami is, uh, it was, uh, uh, they're actually, it's a Parisian studio. Uh, there is, their game has been downloaded over 150 million times. Uh, it has 3 million daily users. And when I met them actually in London, they're from Paris, but we met in London at the Facebook event. Uh, they were like, we, were, we really want to do this with you, but we want Jeremy, our, our game designer, to work on the design. So uh, Jeremy actually worked on it. Jeremy, didn't, it was his first game design. So actually, I came on board as a co, as a co-designer, kind of bringing more uh, experience and kind of balance his vision of the video game and the digital version, and my knowledge of of what to expect around the table and and to actually mm-hmm. kind of make it work together. Gotcha. Well, that that gives you a very interesting insight, especially into what we're going to be talking about today as far as bringing digital elements into a tabletop game, because that's kind of the marriage of, of both mm-hmm. of your companies, right? So you had the digital yes. thing, and now you got the tabletop. And so let's just give people a good idea about what we're talking about. When, we're, when, mm-hmm. we, when we say digital elements into a game, kind of give, give the listeners an idea. What does that mean exactly? I mean, you have the whole range of, of what digital integration can mean from from what we did for Fruit Ninja, which is a simple uh, timer with with some extra rules added. So for the Fruit Ninja, the card game basically uses an app that uh, you click on a button, it's sort a 40 second counter, but after 40 seconds it says, yeah, at this point anybody can tap on me and then I will do a five second countdown. So, And so for me, this is kind of in the lowest range of uh, digital presence. Basically it's mostly a, a physical, Actually, Fruit Ninja is actually even all halfway through a dexterity game with, with a di- companion app, in a sense that just simply count time with some extra rules. But you can go all the way to the other way, which is kind of where we are with with Chronicles of Crime. And and in this case, actually, the the the, the marriage is kind of very complete. Uh, the idea of Chronicles of Crime is that you are going to play games like Time Stories or Sherlock Holmes Constructive Detective, but none of the text is on the cards. The cards are actually uh, actors that you can uh, basically marry each other. You can you can you can uh, scan a person, a character, and then uh, ask him question about another character or another object or locations. And uh, and actually, the, all the text is going to come from the app. Uh, so so I would say at this point we are really in a truly definition of hybrid. However, however, I have an interesting story in this. That if you have asked me a year ago if I would do a hybrid game, I would have told you no, <laughs> and and I'll tell you why. Yeah. 
I actually, I've been lucky uh, through my video game career, uh, and I'm financially comfortable today, enough that I actually I invest in companies. And uh, two years and a half ago, actually, uh, before I even my this whole thing started with my brother and making board games, and Lucky Duck started, I actually invested into a board gaming company uh, that had a, a very strong hybrid project basically actually more than one actually it was a, it was more as a vision they were a boarding company we wanted to do hybrid games and unfortunately this game is is, is no more <laughs> which which is kind of sad for my money yeah. but it was full 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 of lesson very very strong lesson as of uh, as of what not to do when it comes to hybrid not not everything is marriable and uh I talk a lot, Gabe. So, so stop me if you if you if you, no, if you good, feel man. like it's too disorganized. No, I'm learning uh, here. I'm learning. But but so backpedaling and wondering, uh, you know, looking at the market before I started. I'm an entrepreneur for ten years now. So uh, before I actually decided to become a, a board game publisher, I just want to make sure I understand the market. And so I discovered something very interesting: that uh, the current golden age of 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 board game is only six years old, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, six years or maybe six and a half. 2011 was really the year where things really took off. Before that, it was very a plateau of a, of a, of a market that was maybe 250, 300 million dollars uh, worldwide, which is a very, definitely a small market. And so what happened in 2011? There's plenty of things. There is a democratization of games through Facebook, actually. I was part of, the, of that wave, but also through mobile devices. Mm. Mobile devices were a strong... Uh, strong, you know, uh, I would say, ambassador of that. You know, a 30 or 40 years old uh, uh, person can play games on their phone and actually kind of demystify that gaming is not only for kids. But there is also something that happened with this: is that is that the, those devices are extremely isolating, kind of drain a bit of a form of addiction, a bit of depression. They are not all all happy, wonderful things. And I, and I think that there was no major market shift that could explain why since 2011 the, the sport game is market is going. My theory is that it's been an organic growth as a side effect of not wanting a device, yeah. of actually of actually reconnecting around the table. And, um, and and disconnecting from the device. So the whole idea of bringing digital is kind of a tricky thing, right? Because the, the whole reason why this whole um, market has been growing is, in my opinion, as a desire to get away from the device. So looking back into that company that didn't do so well, I think there was uh, not enough maturity and, and uh, and into how to use a device in a way that is that is actually relevant, and 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 not just a gadget that will keep a phone on the side and so it's going to beep all the time because there you have a, a Facebook message popping up. It's disconnecting the whole group. Um, so, gotcha. And so it's really interesting. You got you got that learning opportunity and and you paid for it, but you got that learning opportunity <laughs> yes. uh, about what doesn't work, and you're able to kind of I assume take that data and, and bring it into this next opportunity two and a half years later. And, and hopefully this thing's going to work. And I'm super excited. I think Chronicles of Crime looks amazing. Uh, I actually reached mm-hmm. out to you and said, Hey, do you want to come on the show? You know, normally when people are doing a Kickstarter, they send me an email and they're like, Hey, can I come on the show? <laughs> this is the opposite. It's like, Hey man, I want yeah. you on the show. Cause I want to talk about this. And so what other insight can you give me though, of why that other company failed as far as like what they were trying to do? You know, what, 
Because so, let's say somebody's listening to this and they've got a game in their head and they're like, okay, it's going to need an app. It's going to need this you know, digital element. What could you tell them to kind of recycle some of that information from two and a half years ago that would help them not travel down those same roads and make, the, make those same mistakes? Mm. Well, actually, as a start, I can tell you what uh, Chronicles of Crime uh, does well. Because I, I, it, because I, it's, I didn't invent this. You know, uh, I, I met an author. His name is David Sicurel. He's French. We met in Cannes in, uh, in February 2017. And when he tells me he has a bunch of hybrid game, I'm like, oh, those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not exactly, I'm, 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 very, I'm very nervous about it. I'll tell you what, 10 minutes after the beginning of his demo, I knew I wanted to publish this game, hardcore. Mm -hmm. Like in 10 minutes, this game snaps in your fingers and you get it and you're like, wow, this is so good. I'd say that what works well with Chronicles of Crime is that the device, the use of the device is truly, is actually required, is actually truly fused into the experience. I think one mistake is that if you do hybrid, many players are against it for the, all the reasons we just mentioned. Oh, don't give me a device. You know, I, I play board game for guests. But the premise is that by trying to compromise with it, I think it's, um, I think you, you you risk having a gadget, right? Because what you're saying is that if you can actually live without it, then it means that uh, why do you even need it from the room? Oh, yeah, but it's just nicer. Some bad implementation I've seen, for example, was an app that will just scan points by scanning what uh, you've done. So it's kind of a lazy way to do this. The truth is it just feels like a gadget. It doesn't feel... Uh, it doesn't feel like it's bring something really meaningful. Something that um, counting points is 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 something we can all do with 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 paper and and cardboard and and and, and tokens. Right. So 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 I would say counting time as a pure chronometer also is is not good. You know we we did one though for for fruit ninja because it was more than counting time. It it had actually quite a convoluted rules as of. You have a counter, but after this counter, and it, you can still play as long as you want until someone click, and then you have a countdown. So uh, use, the use of an app here was was justified by the fact that it was actually a fairly complex sequence of events using timers that could not be done just with anything else. Not, literally nothing else could do it the way we wanted to do it. And so um, I would say counterintuitive thing is to think you want to have a way for it to be playable analogly but i'd say if you can really do it is your app really that necessary and and um so answering your original question i would say really go for something that can only be done through the app something meaningful that that can really add to the experience yeah that makes a lot of sense actually making it integral into the experience as opposed to just one little thing that kind of feels tacked on like you're saying if it's just counting points or if it's just telling you who the start player is or whatever it's like why do you why do you need this uh, because again that all all that's really doing is adding a distraction to the table because that lord knows that little box that sits in my pocket is the most distracting yeah. thing in the world yes absolutely absolutely and so, all right, let's talk a little bit more about Chronicles of, of Crime. Where did the initial idea come from? Uh, remind me the designer's name. Uh, David Sicure. David. All right, yeah, so like, how did he have this idea? And like, when you, like you said, you played that initial prototype. You're like, wow, I need, to, I need this game. I need to sign mm -hmm. it. Tell me mm -hmm. about like, that initial experience and, and all that. David could tell you more about his, uh, the, the, the true uh, 
creation time of this, but from from our exchange, basically, it was for himself a year and a half of development, uh, from the initial idea to actually finding a developer who could do a prototype for him uh, for free with uh, some shares, and and to actually then uh, using that tool to actually implement uh, a game and having all the uh, iteration to it. It, it was a, a very long process. When I met him, he actually had a full, uh, I mean, it was a hard-coded, very ugly piece of code that did very well what he had to do for that demo. Um, and uh, and it was developed by a person called Christophe. It was it, it was working well enough for us to really get into the, the, the stuff. It was ugly. It was not very well, you know, as a prototype should be anyway. Yeah. And so... Uh, he himself had many iterations with uh, and uh, kind of his own education around hybrid, what works, what does not. And he knew, and we uh, talking together, we definitely had a common sense of what we don't want to have. And so the game he brought, I, I will tell you a bit more as of why this is working. First of all, the game uses visuals and actually it goes even further it uses a virtual reality but the truth is you can play with or without virtual reality virtual reality is not for every eyes and and every person uh, also not for every device actually your device needs to be at least two years old for it to work but if anybody has played uh what's uh, sherlock Holmes consulted detective uh chronicles of crime is very similar to that sherlock Holmes consulted detective but in sherlock Holmes consulted detective the only thing you have is a book Actually, ten books for ten scenarios, and a lot of text, a lot, a lot of text. What's great with this experience is that we chunked about at least seventy percent. We removed seventy percent of the text you should, you will never, you would actually have on a Sherlock Holmes constitutive detective because there's so many things we can say with a visual. Right. Uh, we actually bring the player on the crime scene. Uh, where they actually have to look for clues themselves, looking at the crime scene. Uh, they uh, they actually get into a dirty apartment looking for, you know, after finding a trail and hacking a phone. Like they, they, there is, so the, the, the phone brings visual and a, a sense of thematic and, uh, and presence that goes beyond uh, the RPG aspect of a Sherlock Holmes that is really this kind of hardcore, right? You really need to like RPG and the idea of projecting yourself into those world. Here, it's kind of a more accessible envision of that. The second aspect of it, that it does very well, that is irreplaceable, and which is the reason why we can't really give you an offline version of this game, is that uh, Sherlock Holmes constitutes, you can come with 10 books. Once you've played those 10 books, this box becomes... uh, beautiful memory, like a book, you know, that you've read. You can't give it away already because you remember you were on that train and how you felt reading that passage and there's really this emotional attachment to, to this to this memory that's physical there. The way things are done in this game is that you will still be able to play that game years after because obviously, so we start to work with actually plenty of writers. Uh, we have... Uh, American, Polish, French writers, uh, we started to really corporate and sign with a lot of people to bring content to the game. 
And so what, what's happening is that the game, the base game, comes with 40 characters, 15 locations. We hope there will be more if uh, the Kickstarter works out. It's a lot of art, it's a lot of assets. So uh, so one of the big reasons for us for having is a Kickstarter is also to be able to have more, more of this uh, arts and, and assets. But the idea is that any of those writer can take this character, which are just a number, a visual, uh, and a QR code, and can decide who they are in their world. So that blonde girl, she is the victim for David's first scenario, uh, but she could be a secretary um, or even a confidence in, in, in another story by another writer. There is 15 um, London location that's, you know, they're kind of area. So when you go there on one scenario, it's actually go to the apartment of someone, but on the other one, you actually go to a nightclub that's next door. So the beauty of using digital right now is that it really brings what works with story-driven game and bring it beyond by actually making those physical objects reusable and uh, and capable of telling more stories. Yeah, definitely. And so, so that's that's th those two things are really what make the game really unique in in the way you play it, um, the thematic, and how it really gets you in into your skin how you you are like a good book you're reading that story you want to know more and and how it still is very visual and yet exciting that you can play another one yeah definitely just the amount of variance and replayability that can come and all it takes this is one of the things i love about uh, digital the the potential in digital games is to get an expansion i don't have to buy a bunch of stuff I can just download it, right? And like, let's say <laughs> let's say something is wrong in the original. You don't have to put out an errata or a FAQ. You just yes. re-upload the the better file or whatever like that. And Absolutely. So that's some really cool things that you can do with with so many different stories. Now, now, do you have like voice acting as well, where it kind of reads to you? No, we don't. We don't. It's it's been talked about it. It will add a pretty, uh, uh, like a very strong uh, amount of work if we want to do it well. I mean, you yeah. can do voiceover cheaply, <laughs> but we don't like cheap stuff. We like to yeah. do have like top quality things. Right. The truth is, we all have experience with good time stories or Sherlock Holmes constitutive detective, and reading text outline as long as it's short, yeah. and it is short. So the the whole principle is that. It's written big, it's a very short blurb, so they are very easy to read. Uh, they are not very long narrative. If, if anybody has played the Sherlock Holmes Constitute of Detective, the first time you play this game, it's like, oh, wow, am I supposed to read all this? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> all right, <laughs> sit down and get relaxed because it looks long. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, so, so very short blurb, and, and we believe it's the best because if we really want to do voiceover, it requires to have a different voice for every single character. It's... It's too much. It actually yeah. takes it takes away also from from it becomes really too much of a video game. Mm, if yeah. you ask me, no, that's a good point. Uh, if if the game is almost just playing me, if it's reading to me, yes. it's it's different it, than yeah. Because there's a yes. lot of people who really get excited about time stories where they can kind of tell the story or they can kind of read and and let people know what's going on, and that's part of the experience. Exactly. Yeah. Now let's talk about the difference between like a DIY, like if so, if someone wants to create a hybrid game, you know, what is what's your advice as far as them trying to figure out the digital part themselves and code it themselves versus going out and finding someone else to do it? Because I like what what is your setup as far as the the digital? Are you did you hire on a, a third party company to kind of do the other stuff or what? No, so it's 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 every day I play with Desit. I mean I, I I'm in the video game industry myself for a long time, so I'm I'm 
I'm grateful to have incredibly talented people around uh, around us. So it's my own video game company <laughs> we did the development. Basically, it was a cooperation of uh, both of my company every day. I play in Lucky Duck. Uh, so for, uh, in that point, it was it was great. Well, I can give you some advice here. I haven't made video game for a while. One of the biggest mistake uh, will be to do native iOS app and a native Android app. At, at this stage of technology, you have tools like Unity, for example, that enables you to kind of write once and deploy everywhere. Or oh, that, that's that's kind of a big sentence. Uh, it's it's not as as clean uh, as as this, but uh, it's it's close to that and. Um, the, the the biggest mistake is to look for an Android developer and an iOS developer and iOS and don't do it. Tech Unity or other technology, there's uh, there's Unreal Engine as well and, and other other engines, um, and uh, develop this with this. They will bring you the capacity to port on both of those platforms and even more later. So the platform uh, compliance is a big one, and doing this like that is 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 one. After that, it depends how complex is the project. It's always better, obviously, if you can do it internally. I mean, it's and then it ju you just come into the video game project management, right? And how expensive this can be. If you spec well, like in any project, if you work with an external party, it's all about how well documented and conductive and explicit was your thought process and the execution of of writing your thoughts and your ideas into something so concrete that they just have to execute it. Uh, and often uh, when you rely on a video game developer, you're like, oh, you're the video game developer, so you must know anyway. So <laughs> why don't you come up with something? Yeah. And uh, you're probably better than I am. Well, no, we're not. Just tell us what to do. Right. Uh, and generally that can lead to pretty bad time for both sides, basically. Because you won't get what you hope for, and uh, and they'd be kind of desperate that you don't really know what you want. <laughs> so so can try to do your homework into what exactly is the digital experience you want to have, and and be as conductive as possible into transmitting that. Yeah, gotcha. All right, and so let's let's talk about the prototyping stage of this. And like sure. you said, the the designer he came to you and he had a very ugly, very rough prototype. That, but it, it worked, right? And so it worked really yeah, well. And I think that's the the most important thing for designers not to feel like even in this style, especially in this style, you don't have to go out and spend a ton of money and to make it look good and buy all these assets and create all these new things. Just make it work. But at the same time, when you're first starting out with one of these games, is it good to have a offline version, a, a pen and paper? Like I've heard a lot of video game designers talk about how they create a, a pen and paper version of what they want yeah. first and then kind of build the, the digital side of things from there. Is it the same kind of process with this? Yes. I mean, it depends on the complexity of the app you want to have. I, I would say yes. It's easy to kind of simulate what an app should do. Everything I've seen, though, doing digital prototype for a while is that, again, Taking a tool like Unity, it's really easy to do a couple of, you know, blue box and, and pink square, uh, like, you know, like some really ugly button, literally just drag dropped into a scene. And uh, and you actually can even have a PC executable so that if you don't want to even have the, the, the complexity of of actually installing it on a phone because it's, it's even too far from you. There are ways for you to, to just have this digital experience just even on a PC in the most ugly, fast way. You know, ugly is good because you can trash ugly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and don't hold to, to the idea of coding perfectly 
because you might actually, you know, like in any development process, you might have to trash the whole thing. So we started working on the bulletproof long-term version of Chronicles of Crime Digital Side only after many more iterations from the time we met with David and actually signed the game. Like we, we before we actually started implementing the final version, which took actually four or five months of, of, of work for one person. Uh, so it was it was a long project of development. It's, it's it's a big project because it has a big tool for all the for all the writers. It was not only the app; it was actually a tool uh, for you to write these things. All right, so let's talk about playtesting. Like what it looks like to playtest this style of game because you're really playtesting two things at this point. It's not just the tabletop; it's also the digital stuff going on as well. So tell me about the playtesting process you guys went through to get this game where you wanted it to be. It's a fair point. Actually, the playtesting of the digital side is uh, requires a very large amount of, uh, of 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 devices. What's tricky, right? As soon as you have an app, is that okay? On the Apple side, there's what ten devices, but on the Android side, there's thirty thousand. <laughs> so obviously, you can't cover all of them. But so at this point for Chronicles of Crypt, uh, we have been blessed to to have this community of uh, Lucky Duck Games Ambassadors. Uh, it's a group of 300 uh, people, fairly active on Facebook, uh, to who we share ahead of time a lot of things. And so at this point, I think we have sent actually above about 110 uh, PNP, and we have received so many amazing feedback as of some weird bug happening on a very specific configuration, even on, uh, for example, uh, iOS, it was the uh, iPhone 6S, a very small proportion of iPhone 6S had issue with the camera and that was not working. And it took, it took Marchino developer like two weeks and, and he wrote one morning at 5 a.m. in the morning, yes, this is this and I found it. <laughs> <laughs> And we would have never looked for this thing if it wasn't for this kind of uh, online playtesting that we've done like this. When it comes to the actual scenario and usage, there is a lot of playtesting as well because it comes to uh, user interface. I mean, we have user interface in this board game as well, right? Will you understand what this icon means? Or like, uh, how can how can you make the rule so obvious that you don't need a rule book, right? That you look at the table and it's, everything is obvious. Oh yeah, this means it costs two to get that, right? Well, it's the same thing. There was a lot of things very interesting that happened. I can share you stories of of, of things that came out through playtesting. For example, in the app, so you, you, you scan QR codes and we quickly, uh, and so the scanning originally was automatic. You just over, the QR code and gets it, boom, it tells you, hey, this is uh, John and he's telling you this. So that's great, right? It was, it's only simple. But the problem is we started to see almost in every single playtest that people were misscanning. When they were handling the phone to a friend, when they were just or chatting, playing with, you know, with the phone around like this, like flying left and right, they would actually scan something that actually, without realizing, and they were like, wait, oh, what's going on? Why are we here? I understand. Like this is so like and like completely destroying the flow, right? So like, wait, is it a bug from the app? Like, I think your app is bugged. Like, actually, no, you just scanned it. Oh, did I? Uh, so we had to change the way you scan. Actually, now the, you actually have to to tap the phone 
to confirm you want to scan uh, as, as a safeguard to avoid all of this. And, and these simple trick really help with the flow because there is no more, ever more misscan. Mis Plenty of little stories like this that, that came up from, uh, I would say, normal board game playtesting, people in the room, and you silently looking at them, biting your lips, hoping they will get it. <laughs> and, and like, come on, guys, come on, it's right there, it's right there, you can do it. Right. <laughs> and, so. Gotcha. All right, and so let's talk about some more pros and cons. You know, we, we've talked about how with this kind of game, you can upload the you know edited version. If you, if you have a typo, if you have something misspelled, whatever, you can just kind of upload and fix that. So there's some really cool pros. And, and, but let's talk about maybe some, some more pros and also some cons. What are the cons? Well, let's see. I mean, the, the cons to technology is that uh, the, you, you need good enough of a phone. Uh, I mean, th this is a smartphone requirements it can leave some player out yeah. for real like it 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 has a, a small barrier to entry due to it i think the smartphone are now really widespreading in 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 presence and usage yet it's not given that someone would have good enough of a phone to to run this uh so so that's the cons i would say though that I've seen people a lot more engaged playing Chronicles of Crime than they've seen them playing other games. Because you see often in, in game with very strong downtime, everybody popping their own phone uh, to check uh, emails or whatever while waiting, while waiting for Patrick. Patrick, are you done or not yet? <laughs> Give me two minutes, please. <laughs> All right, I'll check my Facebook. Yeah. And I think that um, for some weird reason, this... Uh, game that uses a phone totally lowers people's usage of their own phone really? because there's so much going on everybody's trying to process all this information what it could mean and where should we go that the level of engagement is is very strong there's no downtime there's no turn um you're not waiting for your turn it's it's all it's on all the time and so 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 in a way Technology actually lowers downtime and lower the usage of the of the wrong side of, of digital goods. Yeah, I, I we could discuss it forever, but uh, I, I think that's a good sum up <laughs> of, of the last pros and cons I have in mind. Do you yeah. have some yourself? Well, no, I was just sitting there thinking about how you know some people, like you're like we alluded to in the beginning of the episode, uh, they they've come to board games because they hate the addiction they hate the distraction they hate the phone thing they hate that they sit down and eat dinner with their kids and their kids are 13 but yet they're like absorbed in this device and so for people that really have an aversion to that like that really want to totally disconnect they might go i don't want to play a hybrid game because i'm trying to get away from technology i'm trying to get away from the phone and so you might mm -hmm. leave some people out with that although I, I mean i don't know how many i don't know what kind of percentage that would be but overall man i, I see so many pros with this especially in in the expandability you know, in, in the cost of expandability, like you, you're not now necessarily having to go and, and print up 10,000 copies of an expansion. You can just, you know, have all the assets on it and somebody can download that. And like you're saying, you're, you have this like system that you've created. So one, a character in this game is a secretary and a character in this game, she's the victim. Like you don't have to create a whole bunch of new physical things to make that happen and to make that work. And I think that's just a, a wonderful way to, to do it both, it gets more information or it gets games into uh, players' hands quicker. They don't have to wait on the printing and the shipping and all that. You know, they just, 
as soon as it's done, they download it. And then from a, and let's, let's talk about from the cost standpoint, help, help me understand the cost uh, difference in being able to do this as a publisher. And like, instead of having to print up 10,000, 20,000 games, you can just upload it. And so like, tell me the cost differential doing it that way. I mean, obviously the, the, the there's no material requirement for it to exist. There's still a subsequent, a sub, subsequent uh, cost to actually train authors to use those tools and uh, to get them up to the technology. And obviously, and so ultimately though, it's a win for, for the customer because uh, for the player, because in a sense, you know, we are going to, uh, we're going to have obviously long-term some, some paid story, but you'll literally just pay for the writing. There's no need for materials. So it means no boxes, no shipping. And what's, what would have been probably an expansion that would have retailed for $20 just to get 10 more stories? Well, you'll get that for half even more or even less actually than, than that cost because ultimately for us, it's, it's, it's about writing, the time of playtesting the story. Um, and 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 maintaining the app and, and and the stuff, so it's you know we can release we can release an app uh, sorry uh, uh, sorry <laughs> we can release a story within weeks or even days you know once once it's play tested and stuff like that. The biggest process for us is going to be translation. Mm. Uh, at, at this point, the game is wanted by almost every single publisher who have seen it. <laughs> it's it's the first time for us. That we have such a demand, so we know, and we're already working from the from the tech side about what it means to maintain uh, the translation of so much text, and uh, so that's um, and also trying to do this translation as late as possible. There, 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 there's quite a bit of logistic when it comes to translation of so much text, uh, and that's not just up to the publisher. You know, you you give you give those ten books to a Russian publisher. Um, and he will translate it at his own pace and, and print it here. We are still the central piece, kind of keeping it together. So yeah. there's a lot of organization project management in between. But overall, I think it's a win for everybody. And it's, it's in my point of view, it's, it's the direction that story-driven games will take. And in, and in many ways, and I say this not because I'm the publisher, but really because I admire what David Sikur had really put together. I think this is really... Chronicles of Crime could be a, a pivot point in the way story-driven board games could exist in the future. And I'm just very, very excited that I met him, that I got a chance to actually publish this game. I I really don't say this just as, as a marketist, that I truly believe this is something uh, extremely intriguing that might redefine the way we play story-driven games in the future. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Like I said, I saw it, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, I want to talk to this guy. I want to, Whoever's publishing this game, I want to get the background on how this thing came to be because it's such a cool way to do it, to do a game, to present a game. Now, are you guys going to go like the Time Stories route where you kind of have it in the in the box, in the rule book, where you say, hey, do you think you could write a story for us? You want to try and, and kind of teach people how to do it so they'll send you... Uh, Absolutely. As, as, a, as a matter of fact, it's already on the making. The only thing that really prevents us to do full on on this is the VR scenes. Is that they, they require creation of visual that's that's really tricky, that's handmade. But technically, the tool is here for that. We we work really hard on this tool. It's a very approachable tool. Basically, you load the tool, you tell which deck you're playing with, and pretty much anybody can write something with it. And so we we really hope. Uh, we can have some uh, strong uh, community-driven writing uh, around this game because uh, 
the, the potential is very strong. And in many ways, uh, it's actually much, it will be much faster for us to onboard uh, someone's uh, story through, because it will already be implemented for our tools, right, for, for testing it and to actually making it a reality and publishing this guy's story for everyone to see then it will be through a time story process, which is uh, a, a full manufactured on process and means uh, many, many things. There is, again, there is still the, this visual aspect of the, of the, of the, of the VR aspect of the, the surface, which is really core to the game, but it's such a small step compared to what it would mean to create a time series expansion. Yeah, right. And I think you guys can also take more risks with stories that maybe wouldn't sell as well physically, but mm-hmm. the cost is yes. cheaper, and so you yes. can take yes. more of a risk, and it only, you know, and so to speak, it would flop if it was physical. But in a digital aspect, it, you could be doing doing really well. Absolutely. Interestingly, we're still doing physical expansion because, but but in different universe. So we have we want to explain different different locations. So the the, the base game is uh, London, and so actually in London, as I mentioned, we have at least four or five authors already working on London. Uh, but uh, we started working on two other universes. Uh, one is 1950, post-Second World War, Los Angeles, film noir, yeah. kind of ambiance, uh, which is such a great, you know, detective crime settings. And the other, the other one is um, it's called Welcome to Redview, and it's basically 1983, uh, Redview, little city in the U.S., and uh, basically animals have been disappearing for weeks up until the dog of Ricky's disappear, and him and five of his friends decide to get on on to the bottom of this story and try to find Ricky again, and and kind of uncover some some things happening in Redview. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, so basically. Uh, uh, exploring d- different years and different settings with actually with different, um, uh, I would say, uh, vi- visual approach to what we have done. To so so in a sense, we still have a capacity to do what uh, Time Series has done. But but instead of a single scenario, it's an entire universe with character that can that will be also uh, be taken by many authors uh, into their own interpretation of. What 1950 Los Angeles could mean with this character, uh, so 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 it's 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 a lot more ambitious. It's not just a one-time expansion, physical expansion. That's like, you know, 1950 one story. It's actually literally mini universe in a box. Right, and with Sherlock Holmes being in the public domain right now, you could do a Sherlock Holmes thing if you really wanted to, right? We could. We thought about it. There's so many of them that yeah, we thought sure. it will be it, it 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 will be overly competitive and 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 uh, and we will be against true fans' expectation of it. So so we have actually I can spoil that one of the writer is a Sherlock Holmes writer for uh, yet uh, Itzari the the Sherlock Holmes consistency. So he is writing a Sherlock Holmes uh, like one episode of it, kind of in the London things, kind of in modern way, but but. Um, it will be a DLC. Gotcha. Very cool, man. There are so many just different possibilities, and the potential yes. is, is pretty much endless. That's awesome. Now, any other like advice you would give someone who maybe wants to do a hybrid game, wants to bring digital elements into a game? What just kind of general closing advice, closing thoughts would you give them? As, as a conclusion, make sure that the use of the digital is something that is actually unreplaceable. Yeah. 
and uh, don't be afraid to lose the 5% kind of loud board gaming voice against technology uh, to, to try to break boundaries and make sure that your app brings an experience that would not be possible without. I think this is, in 2018, you can't just make a companion app that just count your points. It, it has to be something that truly brings something to the player's experience so that it's worth a device presence on the table, so that it's really worth it's and it's something that's really going to affect the output of, of the emotional journey of the player playing that game. Yeah, definitely. Well, like we've been talking about, Chronicles of Crime, it's on Kickstarter right now. We're recording this early, but it's on Kickstarter as of the uh, launching of this episode. And so if it sounds like a game you're interested in, I want to encourage you to uh, check it out. It's one that I am, I am anticipating and that I am excited about. Well, Vincent... Man, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been it's been great. I've I've learned a lot. Uh, we're about to head over into a bonus round, and we're going to talk just for a few minutes about licensing IPs and what that looks like. Vincent's been working on licensing uh, video games and different things like that, and so we're going to talk about uh, what that process looks like. But anyway, uh, Vincent, really appreciate your time, and good luck with everything you got going on right now. Thank you so much for having me, and I uh, I, I look forward to to get this in your hands. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?